Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are in our wonderful long analysis of the Gospel of Luke from the Bible in the attempt to try to translate the words and activities of Jesus in how we understand these things from a yogic standpoint. What does it mean in terms of chakras, energies, yama and niyama, principles of the universe, laws of the mind, and other such things, because we know implicitly from big yogis who lived before us that they acknowledged that Jesus acted very traditionally, that Jesus acted according to fundamental principles. So now we try to go in this long analysis of the Gospel of Luke, we try to go into the details, paragraph by paragraph, to see what it says. And last time, we had entered into a very thrilling one. It's one of the places where Jesus is giving us a practical injunction. Most of the time, Jesus is showing an amazing behavior, an amazing things, and says, follow me, be like me. He's a sort of method is a sort of neuro-linguistic programming method. Jesus is saying, do some modeling. Imitate me. Be like me. If I walk on water, then you also please try to walk on water. That's literally what he does with Peter, who at some point when Jesus was walking on water said, well, if you can walk on water, why can't you make me walk on water? And Jesus said, Jesus said sure I can. So come, come out of the boat and walk on water. And Peter managed to walk on water for a period of time. You know, like what yoga did he do? Did Jesus teach him on which chakra that siddhi, that paranormal ability is? Did Jesus teach him what pranayama to do for that? Did Jesus teach him what mantra or what uh, visualization should be done? No. He simply said, join me. Be like me, you know, it was simply a matter of belief. Believe strongly in this thing and then it shall happen. Which is an approach of Raja Yoga, which is an approach of the mind directly. It's like a supreme self-suggestion. If you suggest yourself that you can fly, then you can fly. But we know by studying human history and everything which we know about para the paranormal things, that it's not as simple as that. Like that approach is black and white, is everything or nothing. It's a very radical approach. And of course, in the presence of Jesus, it succeeded because Jesus was putting his shoulder into it. He was not just saying it, he was backing it up with his divine energy and mind. But otherwise... Most people who come to spirituality, when somebody comes to, I don't know, one of the rishis, yoga was created allegedly by the Sapta rishis, the seven major rishis from the Vedic times, thousands of years ago. And when you came to one of the rishis and wanted to be taught yoga, they would teach you a technology. They would teach you mantras, visualizations, whatever their methodology was. They wouldn't just say, oh, be like me, look. You know, because they did not actually have the same warrant and the same power as Jesus. They couldn't impress people in the same direct way. 
Jesus was outstanding, shocking, and that's why uh, his method was a very direct method. But even Jesus is sometimes teaching some practical things, like what to do. And here he said to them, it's the paragraph in the paragraph 11 in the chapter 11 of this gospel, where Jesus says, when you pray, say. So Jesus gave them an example of how to pray. Prayer is one of the main practices in Christianity. I don't know how many of you are aware of the fact that prayer and meditation are not at all the same thing. For example, you can say Buddhist monks in monasteries, they do vipassana, which is a form of meditation. And Christian monks in France or in Greece, why not? They do prayer. So prayer is prayer and meditation is meditation. There are two very different ways of involving yourself. It's not the same spiritual practice. Prayer is a spiritual practice in which you basically rely on feelings. It's bhakti yoga. It's based on faith. It's based on devotion and other such things. While meditation is not even based on faith. If you base on the fact that my breath comes in, my breath goes out, my breath comes in, my breath goes out, which is the anapana phase of vipassana, just to give an example among many. That doesn't require any faith. And you just do breath in, breath out, breath in, breath out, and your brain waves are changing. If you are in a laboratory with an EEG electrode system on your head, you just do, and you say, well, I didn't believe in anything. I didn't do anything about God. I'm not a religious person. I just said, inhale, 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 exhale, 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 inhale, inhale. What religion is that? That's why some people say, well, Buddhism is not even a religion. Well, of course, it's not true. Academically, it is cataloged as a religion. But like, what religion is it that you are sitting there and following your breath? And you follow your breath for half an hour, and the machine put on your brain will show clear modification of the brain waves. Radical sometimes modification of the brain waves. No? So, meditation, at least some sorts of meditation, because again, there can be a tantric Hindu meditation in which you pray to Ganesha, the elephant-headed god from Hinduism. And when you pray to Ganesha, you use mantras, you use visualization, you use kirtan, bhajan, devotion, all sorts of... That is a meditation, and it is associated with faith. It's associated with bhakti yoga. It's associated with devotion. So they can be associated, but they are not the same thing. You can have meditation that contains nothing spiritual or religious. On the contrary, the practice of bhakti yoga, bhakti means devotion. You cannot be devoted to your breath. Because the breath is not worthy of devotion, simply. It cannot create, oh my breath, how much I worship you. You know, it, it never causes that. Ah, you could be devoted to Shia, to, I'm sorry, to Buddha as author 
of the methods of meditation. Yes, then you do Buddha Bhakti. You have Bhakti or devotion towards Buddha as a person, as a person that is divinized, as a person that is exalted, as a person that has reached Nirvana, and therefore that person is in a worshipful state. But therefore, make a distinction. Meditation does not need to be religious. Meditation doesn't even need to be spiritual. Yoga Paramahamsa, I'm sorry, uh, Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra, he says you can meditate, a form of meditation which he calls Samyama, and you can meditate on the pole star. And if you do Samyama on the pole star, you will understand not only astrology, but the whole structure of the universe. Or you can do Samyama on the belly button, which means technically on Manipura Chakra, but he says belly button. And if you do Samyama on the belly button, you understand the human being from Alpha to Omega. You understand the human body from A to Z. And you can be better than any better, the best doctor in this world, because you look at somebody and you understand their body completely. Like you have an intuitive knack. You have a knack that you can understand things, see them, and you see somebody and you say, your liver is having a problem. How do you know? I have done Samyama on Manipura Chakra for the last 20 years. Every day, one hour. And because of this, I have developed the capacity that I look at the people. And when I look at people, they are like made of glass for me. They are transparent. I can see through people's bodies. And everything is crystal clear for me in a fraction of a second. So... What has that got to do with religion? What has that got to do with spirituality? It's not even spiritual. And thus, please understand, meditation has many, many applications and collateral things, but prayer is a personal thing. Prayer means that you find an aspect in the universe. And that you relate to it. Perhaps the most obvious in all the human history was the sun. In almost every civilization from Egyptians to Incas and from Hindus to you name it, to Celtic nations, to the Celts, everybody worshipped the sun. They consider that the sun is not just a huge ball of hydrogen, but that the sun is a person that hidden somehow behind that <coughs> shining ball of light, there is a dude. There is a guy. And you can make friends with that guy. It's not only <coughs> Hindus or Celtics. It's all the shamans, all the medicine men, all the people involved in these things, they considered indeed that the sun is a great spirit and that the sun <coughs> is very strong, very big. Not like a, a million people pray to the sun right now. If the million and first is coming, it's like a site on internet. If they have too much traffic on their site, they have to shut down the site because it cannot take too many visitors per second. The sun can take all the people of this earth and much more 
praying to him at the same time. And the son is not God. The son is a deity. But that deity has a level of consciousness and a power which is way, way above what a human being can do. Way. It surpasses the imagination of most human beings what the gods, the deities, can do. In the old days, as you know very well, most religions, like the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Hindus of that time, and all the people around the Jews of the Middle East, the so-called Gentiles, the Phoenicians, the others, the Malachites, the Samaritans, the, all the nations which were there, all of them were praying to deities. They were praying to the sun, they were praying to Astarte, they were praying to Ares, like the Greeks, they were praying to Jupiter, which they called Zeus, of course, Jupiter was the Roman name for it. Like people prayed to deities, and these deities, in case you never got it, these deities were at the level of the planets of the solar system. The planets and the sun, they were like local deities. What's the function of Zeus if you go on a far, far away solar system? In our galaxy even. Nothing. People from that solar system, they don't know shit about Zeus. Because Jupiter is a planet which belongs to this solar system. So Jupiter has an influence and a relevance on, uh, I don't know how much, uh, one billion kilometers around here. If you've gone beyond those one billion kilometers, bye-bye Jupiter. Jupiter is not of relevance anymore. And still for the Greeks, for many Vedic Hindus, and for a million other nations, this was more than enough. This were like the deities and people in Rome or in Scandinavia or wherever, they were sacrificing animals to Zeus and to Jupiter. And they were doing sometimes even human sacrifices or being performed like the Scandinavians were sacrificing one human being every nine years to Odin. Odin, which is nobody else than Mercury or Hermes. Yeah? The god of Wednesday. Wednesday is the day of Odin. In, in Old English and in Norse and Germanic language. So, this was enough. And then there came the monotheistic revolution where people have gone above the gods. This would be the small gods, the deities, and above the small gods they are the big ones. The big ones. If Jupiter is a planet... Then there are gods which are stars or galaxies. They have a bigger organizational system. They are at a level of existence which is bigger than just a planet of a solar system. But for us on Earth, the influence of these huge spirits was big enough and the old religions were satisfied with that. At some point, the human being was not satisfied with that. And they said, we want to go above Zeus. Zeus is not good enough for me. 
So who is the God of Zeus? Who is to Zeus as Zeus is to me? In India, this concept was termed under the name Deva Deva, the Deva of the Deva. If Zeus or Jupiter is a Deva, all these deities are called Devas in Sanskrit. If Zeus is a Deva, then there is somebody who is called Deva Deva, the one who is Deva to the Devas. And Deva Deva or Maha Deva is one of the names of Shiva. So we are going to a totally different level. We are going to the top of the pyramid of the universe. And that's why prayer is a period that you find an aspect of the universe. And for example, in the Bible, it was shown that the Greek philosophy and the Greek religion had this opening that they were worshipping Zeus and Apollo and Hermes and Aphrodite and all those gods which all of them correspond to planets. But uh, they also have left something open. For example, when Paul, the Apostle of Christ, when he was going through Greece preaching the message of Jesus, he found in one of the Greek cities that there was a shrine upon which it was said that this altar, this shrine, is dedicated to a God that we might not be aware of. Not like they were open that there can be something beyond their knowledge. And Paul was very pleased by it. He said, you guys have the right spirit. Until now you have known only the things of the Greek mysteries, of the Greek religion, which is a sort of a shamanic religion. But at least you had the openness to know that there is something beyond your knowledge. And today I came to bring you that knowledge. That God that you don't know about is the God of those gods. And Jesus Christ came in the name of that God, was the materialization or the manifestation or the personification of that one God. So human beings have gone further. Like why should you talk to the mayor of your city when you could go and talk directly to the president of the republic? The President of the Republic has the right to tell to the mayor to do or not to do some things. That's the ratio. When you play, you pray to deities or when you pray to something which is supposed to be the one, the last, the top of the hierarchy of the universe. So prayer means that you identify an aspect which is not impersonal. Oh, I'm praying to my breath. Yeah, but is the breath a person? Is the breath something which can listen to you? Is the breath... No, people believe it's not, at least. No. But then, if you are a skeptical scientist of today, you will say, come on, man. And is the sun somebody who can listen to you? Yeah, today scientists believe that the sun is dead. Like it's not a being. And the difference is that the ancient ones believed that it was alive and you could talk to it. And all those of you 
who got the initiation in Surya Namaskara, in the Sun Salutations, here in Agama, you will discover this hybrid technology, which is a technology which is not directly from yoga, but from the ancient Vedic rituals, in which yogis have discovered that they can communicate with the sun. And that when you do that, you feel something and there will appear effects in your body and in your mind. And anybody who did sun salutations 12 per day for 10 days will say, you know what, it's hard to believe and I don't know exactly what I'm feeling, but one thing I can tell you for clear, the sun salutation does have effects physically, energetically, emotionally, and even mentally. So, there is something. There is something. We, maybe I can't explain it, or maybe I have been educated in a very skeptical and materialistic system of education, and it's very difficult for me to open my mind and to kind of accept that maybe the people who are praying to the sun, maybe they had a point. So, prayer... It's not for everybody. Every, that's why today people prefer Buddhism and Buddhist retreats and Buddhist meditations because you don't have to open your mind. You just sit there and say, inhale, 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 exhale, and what do you do? Oh, your mind will calm down and you'll have some awareness. Good. There is no need for any faith. There is no need for any religion. There is no need for any prayer or personification. So people are comfortable with this. When you talk about prayer, you talk about people who are already convinced of something. Like I know that the sun is alive and I know that I can talk to the sun and I know that the sun will receive my prayer. Or if you don't like the sun, then the next level, the deva of the sun, the boss of the sun, as in Christianity they say, the sun and the moon are the right eye and the left eye of God. Which is, of course, a metaphor. You shouldn't take it literally. It just simply says that the sun is just an instrument from the standpoint of the cosmic consciousness. So we are talking about the next level. We are talking about some level which is much, much bigger. And therefore, prayer is another kind of practice. Prayer is a practice in which you are already convinced you are already open in a religious way and then from there you go by initiating a personal contact. And people say, but Swamiji, what if I'm not? Well, if you are not, then just do Vipassana. Do Vipassana until your mind opens. Use a mantra. Work on the chakras because they don't have any personality. They do, but you don't need to believe in anything. You work on Manipura means that you work on Manipura, which means that you work on Manipura. You know, there is nothing. You work on Manipura, it's Hatha Yoga, visualization, colors, pranayamas, mantras, all the methods, music, meditation, whatever. You know, you don't need to be a believer of anything to work on Manipura. But you can also expect that when the doors of perception are opening, as a famous 20th century philosopher, he called it the doors of perception. When the doors of perception are opening, when the veils of illusion are falling, then you might look at the sun and see something else. 
that's that's again not interesting, not important tonight or in this, but just to make clear a clear introduction that Jesus here is talking about prayer. And in prayer, you are already addressing the divine consciousness as if it is a person. That is why a great philosopher, I forgot actually who said this, I knew it and I remember it every three days and tonight I forgot it. Um, a great philosopher speaking about God, speaking about the faith, his faith to God, he said, God, I wouldn't seek for you if I wouldn't have found you already. Like the person who is seeking for God, to a certain extent has found God already. Because otherwise you wouldn't even have the power, the enthusiasm and the motivation to seek for God. Because at a certain level of your mind, you wouldn't even believe that God maybe exists. So then what do you do? Breathe in, breathe out, back to kindergarten. No, go back and just start with the mind, the breath, all that stuff. Get back to the basics. Praying to God is for people who already made a few steps on the path. And they don't need to be demonstrated that there is a God. That's clear for them. Now they are addressing that God. So if they are addressing that God, it means they found God to a certain extent. But of course they want more. They want much more. They want a communion, a presence. They want a revelation of some sort. So prayer is a very intimate aspect because prayer involves consciousness. The prayer is done with the consciousness while the meditation is very often done with the mind. The meditation means focus, 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 repeat, 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 visualize, visualize, and there is a resonance. And because of that resonance, you can't say, man, after I've done this, my third eye was burning with energy. You know, I was like... No, what conscious effect does it have? Nothing yet. But at least energetically and emotionally and so on, it was doing something to me. So, prayer is a very direct approach. And that's why prayer is problematic in certain ways. And as Jesus presents it to us, he cuts a lot of things. The Jews in those days, they had 99 or 999 names of God. Adonai, Savavod, Jehovah. Again, I'm not pronouncing them in Hebrew because I cannot pronounce them in Hebrew. Uh, so those of you who are of Hebrew language, they, you know how they were originally pronounced. And there were many, many. And the people of Israel were not allowed to use any of them pronouncing any of the names of God was considered to be a blasphemy. Because if, if you came and said, uh, Jehovah, give me some daily bread. It's like somebody would say, how dare you? Like Jehovah is the God of Zeus and of Hermes. And you know, 
you are dust compared to the deities, and the deities are dust compared to God. And you just go, it's like, would you go to the Queen of England and say, Elizabeth, can you get me an apartment to live in? You never address the Queen of England, who is a human being, by calling her Elizabeth. You have to talk obliquely. Would Her Majesty deign in her benevolence to accord to grant me a favor? You know, you talk in the third person, not even in the second person. In the third person, you talk to the queens and kings. No? And the Jews said, Are you nuts? You go to God and you say, Jehovah, 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 give me some daily bread. What if he stomps on you, you know, and says, nasty bug, you know, it's like, well, how dare you? No, it's like you don't. So people were afraid to use even the name of God because they had been taught that God can be angry, vengeful, extremely perfectionistic. And if you displease God with a little bit, Maybe you go to Sodoma and Gomorrah, you know, you fall on the side of the anger of God and then it's like, oops, who can save you from that? Then nothing can save you from that. So therefore, people were not even saying the name of God. And Jesus breaks all the moves by saying, our father, you know, the prayer it's presented in different gospels, slightly different. He says, our Father who are in heaven. Actually, the researches in Bible texts, they show that originally in Arabic, as we found out in the Gnostic Gospels and other texts which were found in original Aramaic, Jesus was using the word Abba, which is not even Father in a formal way, is Father in an informal way. A child would call his daddy Father. So when you say Abba, it's like daddy. So Jesus doesn't even say our Father who are in heaven. He says Daddy who are in heaven. From where people were even afraid to call the name of God because you might disturb it. You might disturb the cosmic. Like you might do something. You might address it in a wrong way and produce its anger. And Jesus is so familiar. He simply says, you know, cut the crap. Don't be afraid come close to this cosmic consciousness. Come close with your heart open and don't be afraid. It's, you are like a child who would be afraid of its parent. It's unnatural. No, I'm saying this, right? You remember we say this even about the sun. Some people are afraid of the sun. But my friends, if the sun disappears by an act of magic, in 48 hours, 99.99% of the people on the face of this earth are dead. And then in another month or two, everybody is dead. No? It's like we exist because of the sun. In a physical way, the sun has created us. Then how can people be afraid of the sun? Oh no, I'm not going to the sun because it's giving me cancer in my skin. It means you have a problem. You are in disharmony. You are not in resonance with the sun. How comes that you're the sun, which is your God and your creator, your local creator, is giving you cancer and it's killing you? Something is very wrong in that equation. No? So exactly as you should not be afraid of the sun 
but you should love the sun. How do I love it? I do yoga on Manipura Chakra, 15 minutes on the beach, naked. Or again, you cannot do it naked too much in, in, in Thailand, in a swimsuit. I go on the beach and I do my Supta Vajrasana and my Trikonasana and some Mudiana Bandhas and something in the sun. And I know that today I cannot take more than 15 minutes. But those 15 minutes I do. And then in six months when my Manipura has become much better, then I increase it to 20 minutes. And if I do that, I can do a lot. I remember when I was in India, there was a Baba living in Harsil on the way to Gangotri. This guy, you know, there is practices where you gaze in the sun. And everybody knows that gazing to the sun is extremely dangerous to the eyes. And if you do one mistake, it can ruin your eyes for good. And even the doctors won't be able to fix them. This guy, this Baba in Harsil, he was looking in the sun two hours non-stop every day at midday. From 11 to 1 o'clock, he was going like this, no glasses or anything. And he was doing Trataka on the midday sun in India. Of course, there were some days in the monsoon when you couldn't see the sun. But when it was sunshine, when it was clear sky, he was looking in the sun like this. No protection, nothing. You know? How did he get there? He trained for 20 years before he got the Manipura, which allowed him to do that. And his eyes became like made of diamond or something. They were not getting harmed by the sun because he had a huge Manipura chakra and he could take it. So, all these things can be developed. And here, in this situation, Jesus is telling people, don't come to the cosmic consciousness with fear, but come like a child. Come like a child to its daddy and be from the heart, innocent, pure. Stop being afraid that you are going to address it in a wrong way and God will get angry. Because that's not the essence of the divine nature. So he says, our father, and in some versions, he says, our father who are in heaven. Because he wants to make it clear, he said it very often, that the worship of God is something which is done in spirit. So he means don't connect to anything physical. God is not something physical. Remember the story at the time of Moses, that Moses went on Mount Sinai to have a vision of God, to communicate with God, to get the Ten Commandments. And when he came back, the Jews had built a golden calf and were worshipping it. Like it's much more easy to worship a golden calf because it's not in heaven. It's something physical and you touch it and you kiss it and so on. It's material. People in religion are very often materialistic. They want material aspects. And here, Jesus is mentioning from the beginning, our Father, who are in heaven, you know, like I'm mentioning this. It, your, your mind needs to be told. We are not addressing some golden calf or some idol or something like this. Not even the sun who is visible and our Father who are in heaven, therefore who are in an invisible sphere.
Of course, the distinction, if you say, yeah, but God is everywhere, but we're not going there. If you start adding all the mentions that you want to add, then you are not making a prayer, then you are making an encyclopedia without end. Nobody can say everything about everything. So there has to be just a hint, just a metaphor, a poetic hint. So here the poetic hint is our Father who are in heaven. And then I already had opened this topic last time and a couple of things have been said, so I'm not going to repeat too much those things. Follow the satsang from last week or two weeks ago, whenever that was. Because uh, I wouldn't want to repeat for those who were there, but uh, he divides the prayer in two halves. And the first half is making friends with God. Like, it's almost like you kiss the ass of God. You brown nose God. You know, because it's like you want to make friends and you say... <laughs> I'm a good boy. I've been a good boy. I am. A, I, I like you. I love you. Know that I respect you. And then you go, could you give me my daily bread and do this and that? You know, you would simply think that this very primitive. It's not very primitive. What is primitive is the human mind. The human mind works on a reward basis. If you did your part, then you expect that God will do his part. And that's just self-suggestion. It's just self-hypnosis. You believe that now you are worthy to do it. Krishna is telling to Arjuna, he wants to do him a favor, and he's telling to Arjuna, Arjuna, offer me a gift. And Arjuna is in a Manipura mood in that day, you know, and he knows that Krishna is very special very divine and he says but krishna why should i offer you a gift like we've been friends for 20 years you are my friend would you ask for a gift and krishna says don't be stupid offer me a gift even if that gift and that's something which stayed in india it's in the vaishnava tradition a lot he says even if you offer me a tulsi leaf tulsi is the basil the holy basil the Indian basil, which is a very special plant used in Christianity as well, very sacred. No, and he simply says, "Give me the one leaf. A leaf of a tulsi is this big." He says, "Give me a tulsi leaf, which has kind of zero value." It's not that I'm asking you to kiss my ass and give me a rich gift, but if you give me something, it's symbolic for your subconscious mind. Your subconscious mind says, look, okay, I even gave you a Tulsi leaf. And then you are ready to receive. You say, I'm worthy. I've done my part. Yeah, I gave to Krishna a Tulsi leaf. It's for you. Krishna does not need your Tulsi leaf. Krishna already has the whole universe. He is an avatar. But you need to do that to open to Krishna. Because otherwise you say, yeah, I'm praying, but you know, I haven't offered anything. At least if I say, uh, Jesus, give me good health, and I promise I quit smoking. I promise I will not be smoking anymore. Then that can produce a healing. Because you say, hey, I gave something. I gave up a habit. I had a vice and I promised I will make a strong effort of willpower and I will stop smoking. 
And I think I deserve to be healthy because of that. And then it's exactly as Jesus says, your faith has saved you. Your faith. God has a lot of faith. But if you are closed, it doesn't get to you. You die of thirst on the shore of a lake, as the Tibetans formulated. And therefore, we need, before we ask for what is essential, we need to open up by offering something. And Jesus is saying that you have to three times offer praise, submission. I'm a good boy. I'm with you. And then you can ask. And that asking is also three. This prayer is made of our Father who are in heaven. And then it's made of six lines. There are six sentences. Three in which you praise God, although he doesn't need it. And three in which you accept that now you are worthy of rewards. I want you to understand well that because theoretically, if you are very wise, you could reformulate this prayer. A Swami Shivananda or a Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, they could rewrite the Lord's Prayer. Again, maybe not as brilliantly as Jesus, because Jesus was one of a kind. But still, somebody who has reached the opening of the crown chakra and the cosmic consciousness state, understand the essence of what's happening here. So, otherwise, if you don't understand, and as a kindergarten beginner, you try to write a sort of a paraphrase to the Lord's Prayer, you are going to praise God inadequately, maybe too much, maybe too little, maybe inappropriately. And then when you ask, you are going to also ask, for some bizarre things which might not be totally kosher or not in harmony with yama and niyama, with the laws of existence. And that's why uh, the, the, the prayer of Jesus, the so-called Lord's Prayer, has exactly this harmony of the mind. In Agama, we quote this prayer even when we talk about one of the most important mechanisms of the yogis in which they teach you how to use the mind. It's the famous thing called the law of perfect accomplishment, which will be the yoga equivalent of the secret or of the law of attraction. How to make affirmations and how to pray, how to uh, program your mind for getting some things with your mind. And when I have that text in the yoga levels, somewhere in the higher levels of yoga, there it's compared exactly to the Lord's Prayer. Because first of all, you don't jump and ask. First of all, you praise. Here in Agama, we are teaching people in levels 3, 4, depending on some systems there, we are teaching people about the blessing, the process of blessing which we do when we catch people on their birthday and so on, we give them a blessing. To give a blessing, first you start by blessing God. You don't bless Walter. Because what power have you got to bless Walter? You bless God, and then in the name of that, you can transit it, you can transfer it 
to Walter because God doesn't need your blessing but God you need to be open to receive that's the great secret here people think that God is reveling in your prayers and in your praise for God they don't make any sense they don't mean anything is just expressing your will your desire to be aligned and it actually works internally in that way <clears throat> so Jesus expresses three desires and the first of them is our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy name in old English today if you want to translate it in current English you would say hallowed be your name talking to if you call God daddy then you can also call your name you can call him you daddy you uh, in the old bible in the king james bible it was thy name it was a more reverent uh, pronoun used there but again that if you have it in your heart to use this language use it by all means if not you can simplify it because what's important is in your heart and jesus says hallowed be thy name i already explained that in the previous satsang because if you do not create a sacred space what are you going to receive the tibetan gurus have an incredible proverb incredible proverb which is not talking so much about tibetan yoga or tibetan gurus it's talking about the mind it's talking about your mind tibetan gurus say the following thing if you believe that your guru is a buddha an enlightened being then when you are with him you will receive the blessing of a buddha if you believe that your guru is just a yogi endowed with paranormal powers which is called a siddha a person with siddhis with some paranormal abilities then there will be a much lesser blessing when you meet with him which is coming from a person with paranormal powers if you believe that your guru is just a learned scholar then there will be a totally minor blessing coming from him which can come from a scholar and if you believe that your guru is a dude like you then there will be no blessing it's as simple as that the tibetan gurus they don't say your guru needs you to consider them enlightened buddhas but you do that's the secret of it you do because you have to open your mind for that level of grace otherwise you say i don't know why the grace didn't come but what did you put in it you didn't put anything and then you expect for the major breakthrough it doesn't work that way so jesus says first of all hallowed be thy name like first when i'm talking to god i am aware of the fact i'm talking to a being whose name is hallowed like you have to brush your teeth before you pronounce the name of god you know it's like hallowed be thy name you don't make funny things with the name of god if you would be a fundamentalistic american christian in the 1950s 
or some Amish, you know, you would get pissed off if somebody says weird things about God. Uh, dear, dear, where is the pissing pot? Because the little one needs to go to the potty. And the other answers, I don't know, dear, only Lord Jesus Christ, only God knows. Your father, hearing you that in 1950, would come and slap you over the face and would say, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. You know, because you don't invoke God like, uh, where is the pissing pot? Oh, only God knows where. That's a blasphemy. You are not talking respectfully about God. And does God get angry? No. You don't get any grace. You don't get any grace. The problem is yours. God is looking with you with com at, to you with compassion. Because you do not create a sacred space. You want that Krishna should give you grace. Then you should say, Krishna, hallowed be thy name. You are God. You are Vishnu. No, then Krishna will show you something about him. But if not, it's not because Krishna cannot, but it's because you are not opening the door. You say, milkman, Krishna, the milkman, give me a bottle of milk. And you forgot to unlock the door. No? You are asking for milk with your door locked. How will the milk get to you? The milkman, Krishna, cannot bring you the milk because you have to open the door. So how do you open the door? First of all, hallowed be thy name. Like I'm in the presence of sacredness. I told you, I told so many things about this in the other satsang, in the previous one. Your kingdom come, thy kingdom come, your kingdom come. Like Jesus said, there is a something which we can call the kingdom of God. And that kingdom of God is a sort of a perfect world. Is where we all go. We are on a Svadistanistic miserable planet full of shit. And those of you who will graduate will go to the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, it's an entirely different story. An entirely different story. Like, I can bring any kind of argument that you want about it. Even the utopian statement of Jesus, when he says there will come a day when the lamb will lie together with the lion and there shall be no more killing. Even the lions will become vegetarian and non-violent because it's the kingdom of heaven. It's in the heart. It's a world in the heart or higher it's another it's like a transfiguration it's like a transmutation of the world into another world much much better and if the bible says there will be a hundred and fifty thousand people making it to the kingdom of heaven those a hundred and fifty thousand people they live in another reality after they physically die they find themselves in another reality, not in the common place where billions of billions of Tom, Dick and Harry have gone. It's another place. So, thy kingdom come. It's like, according to the sayings of Jesus, 
we know that God has a, the possibility of a perfect world. And we are invoking it. We say, could it please come one day faster? One, one minute faster. I can just pray. Thy kingdom come. May thy kingdom come. Yeah, people say it will come in 25,000 years. It's a long time to wait. May thy kingdom come. If possible, even today. But as I said in the previous satsang, the coming of the kingdom of God may be painful for any person that has egoism, impurities, demonic features in their spirit and others. What do you do if you are addicted to alcohol or to marijuana or to tobacco and in the kingdom of God there is none? Then suddenly you don't like the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is too pure for you. There should be some shit in the kingdom of God. No, because otherwise you can't have fun. Therefore, an egoistic person, an inferior person, will not pray for the kingdom of God to come. They will say, may the kingdom of God come, not too quickly, because I want to fornicate a little bit more. I want to smoke some marijuana. I want to eat some red meat. I want to do this. I want to, then maybe we'll think about the kingdom of God. While the fanatic, the saint Athanasius, goes and says, May thy kingdom come today, now, right now. I'm ready for it. I'm jumping head forward into it. I'm 110% for it. See, Jesus is talking from the standpoint of one who is at the level of a perfect purity and is not held back by all sorts of imperfections. So when you say, may thy kingdom come, it's like, oops, am I not asking for some trouble for myself? No. And there is a third sentence, which in the Gospel of Luke is mysteriously not introduced, but it is in the canonic formula of the Lord's Prayer, where he says, May thy kingdom come. And then the third is, May thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I have already explained a little bit about that. I, this is where I interrupted in the previous satsang. No, because may thy will be done. It's like, what? Is the will of God not being done? Not directly obviously and visibly. No, it isn't. If, if the will of God would be fulfilled instantaneously, visibly, spectacularly, pum, no object of doubt, then everybody would be a believer because everybody would be squashed by the evidence. But the laws of this manifestation make that the existence in the physical world is accompanied by such a level of confusion, obscurity and blindness that we don't see a lot of things. People don't even believe in life after death. Everybody says, I still wonder, you know, today science and, you know, everything is so skeptical and so atheistic. 
that even this thing that when you die, you will continue existing, that there is some sort of life after life. I don't know if I can believe in that. No. But when you will be dead, you will know. When you are dead, you see, because you are there. And then you see, and therefore there, you have an understanding. That's why death, people who had near-death experience, they said that death is an awakening. Because when you die, suddenly your inner eyes are open. Then you know something which you have forgotten for the last 80 years. While you have been in your flesh body, you completely forgot some fundamental truths about this existence. Such as that you have been around many times, that people who are in your life today, they may have been in other previous lives with you, that you have karmic connections with a lot of people, that there is a law of karma which functions over time, and a thousand other things which for the people who are at that level, they are obvious. They are as obvious as breathing is for you or moving your fingers. But when you are here, you say, yeah, Swami keeps saying that, but in the end, can he demonstrate it? No, I cannot demonstrate it because God does not allow me to demonstrate it because this is how this world is built. It's one of the inbuilt rules in this manifestation that it has to be built like a house of ignorance. It has to be built as a place where you are not given the full information just to see what you do then. Like a mouse in a labyrinth. When the scientists put a lab rat in a labyrinth, the labyrinth does not know the way out of the labyrinth. And the whole fun is to see how many minutes it takes before the rat finds the way of the labyrinth. Therefore, there are some rules which are very difficult to understand if you are a beginner in yoga and spirituality, how this manifestation really works. And because of that, the will of God is not seen, understood, or not applied directly. It's always happening, but it's happening with delay and in a tricky way so that you don't see it. I gave this example and I would like to revive it. There is a beautiful movie, shocking movie, called Nanking, about the, China, the Japanese massacre in Nanking, where the Japanese army has killed perhaps 250,000 normal Chinese citizens, most of the women being raped before they have been killed as well. It's one of the biggest atrocities of the Second World War. And there were a group of 10 or 12 Christian missionaries who covered and saved the lives of another 250,000 Chinese people by simply standing to the Japanese very bravely and saying, first you have to kill us. No, it's like you cannot get in. They were really, really insanely brave and totally sacrificing themselves. And then, in the end of that movie, which is like a documentary, in the end of that, but it's with actors, you are told what happened with the main actors in that movie, the characters. The woman who was the leader in that Christian mission, 
went back to California, became chronically depressed in 1949 or some after the war, and committed suicide. So she died in one of the most shitty and miserable ways, being also unhappy and everything. And the Japanese commander who was in charge of all that shit, he did three years of detention after the war, and then he was liberated and he died at the age of 93. Probably with a pension from the Japanese government. It's like, is this justice? Is God making a fool of you and me? Like a woman who bravely, with her own body, saved 200,000 people, is allowed by the mercy of God to become depressed and to commit suicide, and God didn't bother to send an angel to stop her from committing suicide. And the Japanese bastard who is a war criminal eat, ate a comfortable pension until he was 93 and we are not even told if he died gnashing his teeth in bone cancer or something you know like some fucking death so we at least feel some satisfaction that God crushed his bones or some he died like a normal Japanese elderly man see that so you would say there is no will of God see everything is just shit everything that's the way Maya is tricking the human beings. Maya is garbling the things in such a way so that even when you look carefully, you cannot see it. Because if you would see it, you'd say, you know what? 50 years later, we made some statistics and we found out that all these war criminals, they all of them died agonizingly maximum five years later. And all the brave, wonderful people they lived long, good lives and they were happy and fulfilled. Then it would be obvious. Everybody would believe in the law of karma. Everybody would believe that there is a divine will or a justice of some sort. But no, the game is not that simple. The game is garbling things. So with a human mind and with a human intelligence, you can hardly see through the maze. You cannot see it because it would be too easy. It would make everything too easy. The exam, the test, would not be serious enough. And that's why God says, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, it is done. Like in the moment when you have died, even if you have lived until the age of 93, and you receive the pension from the Japanese government, in the moment when you die, a very dark creature comes to you and says, and now it's time to count the beans. And I have very bad news for you. No? But uh, the sons and the nephews, the, the grandsons of this dead person, they don't see it anymore. It's happening around the corner. Nobody sees it anymore. So as far as they are concerned, their ignorance persists. And for this person who died, it's too late. It's already, he has come around the corner, and then he sees, oops, now, now truly the will of God. Now truly it's going to be seen. 
So, the may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Like Jesus would like a transparent universe. A universe in which the people in the physical body can see what the dead people see and have clarity. And in the moment when you have clarity, who would waste their time? Dalai Lama has a wonderful quote. He says, life is like crossing a bridge. Because before we were in this life, we were not here. If there was a previous life or not, nobody knows. Nobody can demonstrate scientifically. But one thing is for sure. Before you were born, there is no scientific evidence of you having been around a year before or two years before or 200 years before. There is no evidence. And when you die, there is again no evidence that there is something afterwards. And therefore, it's like we don't come from here. This is not the ultimate reality. This is a temporary experience. An experience which we have for about 80 years. For about 80 years, we live in this. But we don't come from this. And when we go, we don't go into this. So the Dalai Lama is right. He says, life it's like crossing a bridge. You are between this mountain and this mountain. You are on a bridge which takes 80 years. And he says it's what is incredible is that all most of the people, they want to build themselves a house on the bridge. It's like you know that this is not permanent. This is the Buddhist meditation on the ephemeral nature, on the transient nature. Everything is transient. Nothing is lasting. Then why on earth are people dying to buy land, to buy houses, to build pyramids, to accumulate gold and riches, to have fame and reputation, when the whole shit will be over in 50 years or in 80 years? You are on a bridge. What was before the bridge is infinitely bigger. What comes after the bridge is infinitely bigger. Then why focus on the bridge? Because we are ignorant of what was before and after. And then we focus only on what we know. But that's a very reactive way of being. It's just reacting with ignorance. Because we are ignorant. <clears throat> so, that's why Jesus would like a transparent world. Jesus would like a world in which you would see. If no, like let's say Voltaire. The famous French writer Voltaire was one of the founding fathers of the French Revolution. Or let's take another famous name. Queen Elizabeth I was the one that liberated England from the Spanish Armada or something. Or let's take another name. George Washington is one of the founding fathers of the United States. If you would have a transparent universe and you would see Voltaire, Elizabeth and George Washington, all of them in terrible conditions in hell since hundreds of years, what would be your conclusion? No. Then suddenly 
everybody will say, no, 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 look, look how the truth is. Look what happens, like, no, 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 no. Something is very wrong, because you see, like this, you think that George Washington is a good guy. There is a bridge called George Washington. There is a city called Washington. There is an American state called Washington. Hey, he must have been great. But if you find out from Yogananda Paramahamsa that Washington is rotting in hell because he was a Satanist, suddenly, uh, maybe I should not walk in the footsteps of George Washington. Because if you do what Washington did, you get where he got. But because we don't know that truth, because it's hidden from us, we take very often wrong decisions. And Jesus says, pray for this clarity. May thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why? Not because I need any satisfaction. Because the justice belongs to God. The will of God, karma, whatever is there. It's not my creation. I have nothing to do with it. I am also enduring the same cosmic laws as everybody else endures. It doesn't make any favor to me. But it would give me the clarity to make choices. And thus, this prayer, this third aspect of the prayer is very powerful. May the will of God be done, you know, clearly. Because in heaven it is. But when you get there, it's too late. You have lived your life. You have done your deeds. You have created your karma. And then the only thing which you can do is taste the results. Have the fruits of your karma. And then you say, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. Better luck next time. If there is another life, maybe you will remember that last time you fucked up miserably. And then maybe you won't do that. And if you don't remember and you fuck up again, then you fuck up ten times. And the eleventh time you'll get exasperated and say, now I don't know why. I'm not going to touch this, whatever. You know, like I cannot do this. Like the people who faint when they see blood. According to the great yogis, those are people who committed a lot of bloodshed in previous lives. And they have been suffering in hell so much that now when they see blood, their subconscious mind goes, no, 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 run, run, run. This, this, this reminds you of something very bad. You know, like run, turn, run. It's not for you. You shouldn't even be around such a circumstance. No? Because, so, even when you do stupid things, you learn. But it takes a lot of time and a lot of pain. And sometimes you can repeat the mistake many times before you actually learn intuitively something. So, if the will of God would be done clearly, quickly, transparently, everybody would know what the name of the game is. But the name of the game is not that. And then, he can move to make requests. So, which are the three most fundamental requests that Jesus advises you to do? Again, you can do other requests. Let's say, for example, you want to pray for health because you have a severe health problem. It's not forbidden to pray for your health, 
or even better to pray for somebody else's health no you can pray for uh, i don't know there is uh, australia is getting scorched by fires you know it there's nothing wrong that you address a prayer please if you can diminish the fires in australia by sending some rain or something you know it's a selfless prayer especially especially if you are not australian and especially if you don't have any vested interest in australia or friends who will send you kangaroo meat or whatever they will send you from australia no like a real selfless prayer you know i am praying for australia completely selfless i have nothing to get from it and from my good heart i'm sending a prayer you know so it's not forbidden to pray but here jesus is giving these three as symbols they are like headlines they are like essentials and he says give us today our daily bread the human being needs to eat unless you have a special grace and like giribala from the book of yogananda or like therese neumann also from the book of yogananda but she can be read about in many other places or like others you are living with light you have become a breatharian or something that category exists that guy who was doing sun gazing whatever his name was <clears throat> and others there have been several people tested that they did not eat anything some of them for years for years therese neumann was researched by the army of hitler the nazi army surrounded her house and kept her under watch 24 hours per day because they wanted to make absolutely sure that this woman was not cheating and guess what even the gestapo could not find that therese neumann was cheating therese neumann did not eat anything except this little bread for catholic communion once a week once a week she was eating a wafer like a biscuit about the size of a nail that was all her food in one week and she was fat and every thursday evening or friday i forgot she was sweating more than one kilo of sweat and blood she was losing body fluid which impregnated her shirt and her garment and she was eating 3 grams of bread per week from where and she was working in the garden she was uh, tending to her vegetables and flowers in the garden so she was doing physical activity that's why i say give us today our daily bread means many things because if you are a yogi there is a story in moldavia about the fact that they discovered the female saint one day when uh, the cook of a monastery far in the mountains of moldavia reported to the abbot that there are birds coming through the window and stealing food from the kitchen of the monastery and taking it and running and it it was becoming a stream you know like a bird was coming every minute you know and then the abbot was experienced old and he said there is a hermit somewhere that these birds are feeding so he simply said follow the birds discreetly without scaring them follow them and they followed the birds for 3 days from where deep deep in a forest where nobody had been 
And there they found a woman called Theodora. And this woman was living alone in a cave. And the birds were bringing her food because she had no food momentarily at that time. Give us today our daily bread. Like it can mean anything. This woman was not a breatharian. She took something. Of course, how much can the birds bring you stealing from a monastery? Very little amount. But she was living with very little amount. She was a very ascetic person. And what I'm trying to say here, give us today our daily bread, has a lot of connotations. Because, for example, Jesus, I don't remember if it has been before or after, because I have made comments on three different Gospels and the stories are interlaced in them. Uh, at some point, Jesus, in one of the Gospels, tells to his disciples, you shall abstain from the bread of the Pharisees, that was a sect of uh, religion theologians, Jewish religion theologians, because man is primarily feeding himself with the word of God. Like it is exactly like they complain in India that there exist so-called rice Christians, that the Catholic Church being relatively rich, especially 50 years ago and more, it was going in poor Indian villages and was saying, you want rice? We're going to give you rice every day, but you have to baptize yourself Catholic. And India was becoming full of Catholics, and they were called rice Catholics. They were baptized for the rice, not for Jesus Christ. No? So in the same way, it's like Jesus said, don't get social advantages by just compromising with this. This is the politically correct people, because they are teaching <coughs> blasphemies. They are teaching things which are not right. And he said the word of God is more important. The truth is more important. If one day you don't get the food, but you got the truth. Like let's say I'm keeping you tonight in this satsang and you didn't manage to take dinner. And some of you are thinking, oh, when does the fucking Swami finish the satsang? So I maybe catch a restaurant open and have some dinner. What if I speak until 11.30 and all the restaurants are closed? Will you stay with me? Will you follow? Is it, is it important for your heart, for your mind? Am I telling you something relevant? Or I'm just talking to myself and I think it's important. And for you it's boring and it's uh, some madness. Of some sort. No? Because the point is, would you give up one dinner to hear some incredible spiritual truths? Is the spiritual truth feeding you? <coughs> or food is your first priority? Jesus was saying exactly so when he says, Now give us today our daily bread. The daily bread means many things. Remember that the Jews lived 40 years in the desert, mostly in Sinai, in the area of Sinai. <coughs> and they didn't have vegetables and proper food. And the legends from that time say that the Jews were eating a white powder which was crystallizing on the rocks in the morning, being like brought by the dew. It was like some dew in the night, and as that dew was drying up in the morning, 
it was leaving some white marks on the rocks. And then if you came with a knife and scraped the rock, it was giving a powder. And that powder was fucking boring. Like it had no taste, you know, it was not like beefsteak. It was not like falafel. It was not like oranges. No, it was to eat dust. <coughs> it's, you are like the astronauts on the space station. You know? even, even they get some tasty food from time to time. No? But otherwise you are just eating proteins and carbs which God has mysteriously materialized on some rocks. God, could we have some falafel, please? Once a week at least, you know? No! For 40 years there was no falafel. And they ate. God gave them their daily bread. Their daily bread means that these people were surrounded by the Egyptians, which wanted revenge, by the Babylonians, by the Amalekites and Phoenicians and others and others. And none of them loved the Jews. The Jews had to make a place in the world for them to get to the promised land. And that happened only later. And for a while they had to wait. And even when they waited in the most unfavorable conditions, because Moses was a prophet and he was bringing to them the grace of God, then the Jews were miraculously fed. Later, when the Jews got their own land and they started producing vegetables and bread, the manna, this, this powder was called the manna, this manna did not come anymore. Because God didn't need to send it. It was a miracle which was done every day for 40 years to just keep the Jewish nation from extinction. Imagine what a huge miracle was done there, you know. Then you can say, but, you know, miracles are usually not that visible and not that convincing. So, first of all, Jesus says, give us today our daily bread, which means for us <coughs> to exist on this planet, it takes a sacrifice because this world is a world in which the big fish is eating the small fish. You, to exist, every day you kill, 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 kill. You kill bacteria, you kill microbes, you kill viruses, you kill microorganisms. If you have fleas and lice on your body, you kill them. If you have bugs in your house, you squash them and brush them out. Because it's your space. Hey, I'm sleeping here. I'm eating here. No bugs. No spiders. No lizards. No, okay, in Thailand it's a bit difficult to get rid of all of them. But at least some people are trying, you know. So, and then not only that. But also, whatever you eat is a kill. You eat carrots. But the carrot was alive. It had green leaves and it was a living plant. And then you pull it out of the ground break the leaves, wash it, grate it, and then you eat it. But the carrot was alive. It was a being. It was a plant. And you are eating it. So even to eat vegan food and raw food, you still have to kill. Therefore, the mystics have said, this Mother Earth 
is sacrificing herself because remember if Jupiter is a god then the earth is also a planet only it's not there it's right under our asses and the earth is also a deity Gaia mother earth mother earth is sacrificing for us and even if you are vegan and raw food ist or fruitarian or something you have to sacrifice things from the nature to feed yourself to sustain this body you have to kill parts of the nature and that's why you are alive because the nature which is the body of God sacrifices itself for you so the question is what did I do to deserve this sacrifice I just the nature sacrifices itself to feed me and all I can do is go to Las Vegas and play slot machines for 45 years like an idiot then somebody up there would say you know wouldn't it be more profitable if that guy just died because he's breathing everybody's oxygen and he's farting and destroying the ozone layer with his fart for nothing it's like that person is like a completely useless member of humanity you know it's like why are they taking resources from humanity you know the planet is severely tested and we don't need one extra idiot to stretch the resources even more so therefore the people who feel responsible spiritually they say thank you God for giving me food one more day the, the fact that my food is meat or vegetables or milk or whatever that's from culture to culture different cultures have, if you live like the Eskimos in an igloo you are not going to eat cabbage because there is no cabbage in North Greenland you know in northern Greenland you can eat only fish and seal and polar bear and well, you are they are 100% meat eaters all the Inuit and the Greenlanders <clears throat> in the all the Eskimos especially in the northern parts of the Eskimo culture so it depends everybody is given a diet according to the habitat where they live but everybody has the moral duty to say thank you mother nature for giving me one more day on this planet because again you have sacrificed yourself and have given me oxygen water food so that I can sustain this body and exist the existence is not for free the nature pays a price not to mention that we human beings have become so arrogant that maybe we live way beyond our necessities and our carbon footprint and all those things are really too big but even in a simple culture like the Israeli culture at the time of Jesus Jesus first of all says give us today our daily bread this means to live with a certain awareness that if God doesn't want to give you your daily bread you will starve it's not granted it's not guaranteed it's not promised to you forever and ever you are getting your daily bread through grace through grace and therefore 
You have to thank for it. It's a way of indirectly thanking, but it's also a way of asking. Like, I want to live. Give us today our daily bread. This is very polite, very harmonious, and this is something which you do when you pray before eating. If you are a spiritual person, you say a grace before. You say thank you for giving us food today. No? I consecrate the act of eating for something. You cannot see it because it's not tough enough. But think about the people who were in that Chilean or Argentinian airplane who in the 1950s fell in the Andes, a football team from Chile or Argentina, I forgot, and they lived for 80 days or 70 days without food and they started eating the dead ones. And eventually they were saved. There is a movie, a shocking movie, which is called Alive. Would you know? And then there is interviews with the real people who were in that event. And they say it so beautifully. Because one of them says, after we descended into such a level of abomination that to keep our miserable bodies alive, we had to eat human flesh. Then we got so disgusted with ourselves that we asked ourselves, how should we live the next 20 years of our lives to make it worth it? Like if I live like a complete idiot, then was it worth it to save my life? Shouldn't I have rather starved to death and died gloriously, died honorably? Like this I became a cannibal and I ate human flesh. Why? What did I have so precious to offer to this humanity that I really had to save myself? What was so important about saving this shit? Because I lived another 20 years and I did shit, I did nothing. It gave them a sense of responsibility. You know, like, I can't live my life in a banal way, you know, you know, because I will feel guilty that I ate human flesh just to perpetuate an absolutely insignificant physical life. Then why did I do it? Why did I bother? I could have stayed clean and avoided it. And people will say, this guy, rather than eating human flesh, he preferred to die of starvation. He was very honorable and very pure. And he was a special human being. But no, I ate human flesh like an animal. No? Why? How, did, how do I make my life be worth it? Such a miserable thing. So it's the same here. Give us today our daily bread. How do we make ourselves worthy? It brings this awareness, you know, that my life has a purpose. That nature is sacrificing itself to keep me alive. It's not guaranteed. It's not automatic. There is an effort of nature to create life and to sustain life. And therefore life must have a value. It must have a meaning of some sort. And then he says, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. The King James formula is, and forgive us our sins, our 
trespasses as we forgive our trespassers, those who do it against us. Here, it's, this is the law. This is typically Jesus. We don't know if Moses would have educated people in prayer if he would have ever said this. Because Moses was eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Well, this is not... Jesus wants you to obtain something superior than even justice. Jesus wants you to obtain forgiveness. And he said it many times. With the same measure with which you measure unto the world, with the same measure the world or God is going to measure unto you. So, if you want to be correct, we have to be so correct, then don't be surprised that your guardian angel will be a perfectionistic asshole when you die and will be correct. Yeah, but you remember when you did that? What about that little thing? Then your list will get huge because you have been correct. And it is exactly as the liturgic Christian hymn say, who is without sin in the eyes of God? Like the human life is made of a lot of little miseries and shit. So when you start counting the list, the list is getting fucking long. And the only chance to actually sort out this conundrum is to obtain forgiveness. Mass forgiveness, you know? It's like, you know, forgive the whole list, please. And then the divine consciousness says, there's only one way. If you also do that. Not because, again, it serves God. It's the law of resonance. You get what you are. You get what you think. If your mind is in the state of forgiveness, you will have the resonance with the forgiveness of God. And you will get the same. And therefore, whatever you want to obtain, you have to give. You have to be on that wavelength with your mind. And the only way to be forgiven of a very long list is to forgive. If you don't forgive, you have to be punctilious. In people who work, who study Judaism, they have said that to be kadosh, you know, in times in the Talmud and others, they develop what has a Jew have to do to be pleasing to God. And that is to be kadosh, to be holy. And the list has reached nowadays to something like 800 and something conditions to be fulfilled every day. Every day you have to fulfill 800 and something holy things so that God should be your friend then Jesus says, I have a more simple method. Forgive. And then it will be wiped out for you. You don't need to go to 830 points. Get a total absolution if you give the same absolution. Guess what? There will be people who cannot do that. Like sometimes revenge and these things are so sweet that you'll say, even if I don't get forgiven, let the bastards pay. You know what Mahatma Gandhi said? An eye for an eye makes the whole world go blind. 
because everybody is doing some shit somewhere. And if you just want an eye for an eye, everybody will end blind. That's not a solution. Even Buddha has said it, and he said, every time when an evil is forgiven on the face of this earth, that much evil disappears from the universe. The way to make the evil disappear is forgiving it. Forgiving it. Forgiving it. That's why the second condition is typical anahata. This an eye for an eye is Manipura. Is the philosophy of correctness. And then Jesus comes and says, you know, when you go in anahata, it's not like this. No. Jesus is not the terrible Jehovah who spanks you. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, God is your daddy. And you say, daddy, I fucked up again. And daddy says, come on. I remember one of my friends was with a guru, with one of his gurus. And he was doing, so he was trying to get do some domestic chores. And at some point he broke some big glass shelf or vase or something. I forgot the details. He broke something which was, again, pretty precious, you know. And so on. He was, this guy was called Nicholas, you know. And he immediately apologized and he said, Guruji, I'm sorry, you know, it's like, uh, I've been careless and look what I've done, you know. And the, the guru, his guru looked at him and said, Nicholas, who will remember this or care about this in a hundred million years from now? But for that, you have to go to the level of Anahata, Vishuddha, Ajna, no, you have to think big, you have to get out of Manipura. Because in Manipura, it's just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And you have to pay. And in Anahata, it's like, you know, it's like you told me. Remember the legendary story of Adam. That Adam was told not to eat from that fruit. And then Eve gets the fruit. And she says, why don't we try? Then we'll be like gods. We'll be as smart as God is or something, you know. And they ate the fruit. And God comes. And Adam is hiding because he knows he's naked. And before he didn't know he was naked. He was like oh, totally okay to be naked. But now he had to hide his dick. It was shameful to show his dick in front of God. You know? And God is asking, who told you that you are naked? You know, like God knows that now the shit has happened, you know? And, uh, and Adam says, uh, it's the snake who gave us the apple and Eve made me eat it. All the Christian mystics said all it would have taken would have been for Adam to say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. But he didn't say that. Adam reacted on Manipura. He said, the woman made me do it. The snake made us both do it. This is, you know, he was like a a defendant in a trial, you know, in a courthouse on Manipura, bringing arguments. The only argument which you have brought would have simply said, I have been weak. I I had a moment of weakness. I've been curious. I've been stupid. Please, please, please forgive me. Wouldn't the cosmic consciousness have forgiven him instantaneously? Jesus says yes. But for that, you have to have that state in you. That state has to exist in you. That you are ready to give forgiveness. And then the universe will give you that forgiveness. That's why the fifth and last but one of the statements of Jesus 
and we kind of stop here. It says, forgive us our sin, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Again, it's another formulation. I could read you the King James formula, but it's useless because you know it and it's all over the internet, you know. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive our trespassers or something like that. So, that's the way, that's the short path. When you have a religion or a spirituality which is lower than that, like Manipura, Svadhisthana, Muladhara, there there is hell, a lot of hell, because there is no forgiveness. The forgiveness starts with Anahata, and that's the short path. That's why Jesus is teaching the short path. He says you don't need to do all the nitty-gritty things, but just forgive. And if you forgive, then you can have the cheek to look at God and to say, and forgive me also for all the stupid things which I have, may have done today, because I also, look, I'm forgiving everybody who did things against me. Fundamental. This is the psychology of Anahata Chakra. This is, if you can do this easily and systematically, you are in Anahata Chakra. You have seen a piece of paradise because you have access to the heart. I remember once I attended a seminar of one of the great motivators in the world. It was in Anthony Robbins' thing. And he started the days of some seminar with this, that it was the day one or two of this. And first of all, you had to start by forgiving everybody. First, you had to go through a list and make a list of everybody who fucked you in your life. Not literally fucked you, but metaphorically, yeah, because he had nothing against sex. It was about the other thing, you know? And, so, and then you had to forgive them. It was a revelation even for me who have been in spirituality a lot, because when I tried to do the exercise, the list was quite long. I was holding resentments in my heart towards a long list of people, you know? And it's like, you know, then... I realize, you know, it's like, where is the way of the heart? Where is the path of the heart? You, know, you want to be forgiven? You have to forgive. That's the first rule. So, that's why this is very important. Jesus is asking, give us our daily bread, which means make us live harmoniously, sustainably, and forgive our sins as we also forgive. It's the law of resonance. You have to be tuned in on the frequency of forgiveness, which is in the heart. And when you have that, then automatically forgiveness comes to you. Because it's a two-way. You give forgiveness, but at the same time you also receive. It's, a, it's open both ways. And lead us not into temptation, says the full version, but deliver us from the evil. See, three fundamental, like let's pray for three essential things. Keep us alive in a harmonious way, like we deserve to be alive on the planet Earth, on Mother Earth that feeds us and sustains us. Forgive everybody because that's the short path for you to obtain forgiveness. And finally, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. Today, people are so egocentric and so 
Some were afraid of their own shadow and of their own demons because they know intuitively that we live in a very dark world with a lot of demonic influences. That people say, I don't want even to think about this. I don't think there is evil. I don't think there is the devil. I don't think there are the demons. And therefore, deliver us from the evil. Do not lead us into temptation. This is a childish attitude. It was René Guénon, the great French metaphysician, who in the middle of the 20th century said, one of the biggest tricks of the demonic forms of consciousness is to make people believe that they, the demons, do not exist. And in this way, everybody becomes negligent, morally and ethically negligent, and they go by this stupid thing which says, oh, everything goes, which is completely not true. And then people are become completely defenseless because they are attacked by an enemy that they don't see coming. And when they see it happening, it's too late already. Like tobacco is intoxicating you. Tobacco is a shamanic plant. Shamanic plants have spirits like the mescalito of Don Juan in Carlos Castaneda. When you smoke nicotine, just to take a simple common example, there is a spirit of the nicotine which is known by the shamans from North America and South America. And that spirit is bad. It's a dark spirit to the point where when tobacco was brought to the Catholic Church in the 16th century from America, like look what we found in South America, because they didn't have it, it was called the, the devil's grass, because the people who smoked it, they had reactions of being possessed by the devil. The nicotine is producing horrible and dark reactions, especially when it's taken in bigger doses. Today, people smoke without any relevance, like when you smoke, you give yourself to the devil. No, no, if I would say that, people will throw tomatoes at me. They will say, come on, Swamiji, it's like you are coming from the 12th century or something, you know. You sound like the Spanish Inquisition. And yet, that is the truth. That is the sad truth. That's why we live in a world where we intuitively... We know that there is a lot of dark stuff, and because we don't guard ourselves from it, because of this, we become negligent. And when a prayer like this one says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, it's very important. Remember this, I think my first Hatha Yoga teacher, I asked him about some Christian things, And I asked him even about this, what it means, do not lead us into temptation. And he was a very special person, very clairvoyant in many ways. And he said, people cannot even imagine what would happen if God would want to lead them into temptation. Like there is temptation everywhere. I said, I'm going to eat vegetarian today. And then I don't. Because I was tempted by some food which was not vegetarian, and I ate it anyway. You know? Imagine if God himself would want to tempt any one of us here. Do you think there is anybody with the willpower strong enough to resist to the cosmic consciousness? It's not even in a dream. 
not even in a dream of a dream, not even in a joke of a joke, you can know. So if the divine consciousness wants to tempt you, you are gone. It's like it's 99.9999999999999999% that you will be tempted. The chances almost microscopically infinitesimal that somebody could be tempted and still stand, stand their spiritual ground. And that's why the prayer of Jesus is very interesting because he prays to God. He doesn't say the devil is tempting us. He says, do not lead us into temptation and del but deliver us from evil. More next week or whenever the next satsang is, I will take it from here and I'll comment this last verse, which is um, fundamental and it has been explored in human philosophy a lot because it's about the root of evil. We all complain that there is a lot of evil. The most simple evil is that you have a headache, you know, that's a sort of an evil, you know, it's like nobody wants to have a terrible migraine or a terrible headache. Even that is, a, and we want to be free of all evils. I want to live a happy life with all the good and wonderful things and so on, you know. How are we being delivered from everything which is evil? Because evil is not such a simple concept. Evil is a lot of stuff. And I'm going to quote to you from the Bhagavad Gita to show you how Bhagavad Gita shows the roots of what we call evil, pain, suffering, ignorance, and all those things. More about that next in the next satsang. Thank you all for joining tonight and for resisting to this long thing where we are just uh, spinning around one prayer. One prayer which has six lines or with the title seven lines and yet it contains so much relevance, so much wisdom. That's why this prayer has made history because apparently, as far as we know, comes from the mouth of Jesus himself and it represents one of the most archetypal models about what does the human being do in respect to the universal consciousness, to reality, to nature, to the universe. Again, with this, let us finish for tonight.